Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beautiful day which we are experiencing on this Mother's Day. We're thankful for a time in which the ladies are honored who have brought children into the world, that you have blessed with children and grandchildren and maybe even great-grandchildren. We're just grateful, Lord, for the fact that in Christ we can have hope and we can have the sense that the whole plan is working together, not only for our good, but for the accomplishment of your kingdom. And Father, we pray, especially for the mothers and grandmothers here today, that your hand will be upon them for the blessing of God this day and each day, and upon the children that have been begotten over the years, that each one will be drawn into that right relationship with you. Father, our greatest hope and our greatest desire is that our children, our grandchildren, will walk with you and that we will all be gathered together one day with you. And for those that are outside the fold, we pray that you might bring them in. Now, Father, bless this time of our study, and may your word be enlightened before us by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Some of you, or maybe most of you, are familiar with a man in American history by the name of Andrew Carnegie. Uh, Andrew Carnegie was a Scotsman who came over uh, to America in the 19th century as a very young man, and uh, through uh, being a very uh, Scottish-type person, was able to uh, collect his shekels together and eventually to found United States, well, what became ultimately United States Steel. It was Carnegie Steel, and when he sold it out, it was formed ultimately into U.S. Steel, which was, at that time, the largest uh, steel company in the world. But what's interesting about Andrew Carnegie is in, he's an example of an immigrant who came to America with this dream of moving from rags to riches. And probably many of you are aware of uh, a writer by the name of Horatio Alger, who became quite well known as the best-selling author in the 19th century particularly for writing rags to riches type books. There are of course, many uh, examples of this in U.S. history. Joseph, the person we're focusing on here, illustrates this, though, in some convoluted ways. Because Joseph started out with riches, and he was reduced to rags as he was taken from Dothan as a slave down into Egypt. And then we see that he is being elevated from rags to riches in the house of Potiphar, and we're going to see that he's then again reduced to rags, and then re again returns to riches. Now, as we look at that, we wonder, what is God doing? <laughs> Doesn't God know that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line? You know, not this convoluted uh, deal. But as we've already noted, uh, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He has a plan. He's carrying out his plan. He was carrying out his plan in, in Joseph's life, which, which was far beyond Joseph himself, and was to incorporate Jacob and his family, and, and the whole future of the nation, and preservation of the line that would ultimately yield Messiah. And so as we look at this story, we are sometimes baffled, but at the same time, we have to always come to recognize that the route may be circuitous from our perspective, but from God's perspective, it's bringing about his purpose in his time. And so as we look at this man, Joseph, we're going to be looking at a rather undesirable event in his life, one of those which reduced him from 
riches to rags for a second time. I, I would suspect it would be, you know, from the human point of view, he was getting a little old after a while. In the 39th chapter of Genesis, let me uh, go back to verse 6 and then read from 6 through 18. Because 6 brings us directly in to the next section, which is 7 through 18. Joseph has risen through the ranks of the servants there in Potiphar's house. And ultimately, as we read in verse 6, so he left, this is Potiphar, left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now, and this is, you know, kind of totally out of, seemingly out of context, have, having almost nothing to do with what's been said in these first six verses. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, you know, at this point, maybe I should just inject the fact that Genesis was not written in chapters and verses. It was written in a continuous narrative. It was much, much later written or, uh, you know, divided into chapters and verses. And so it became the choice of the divider as to where to versify, if you will, uh, or diversify uh, this particular chapter. And personally, I think maybe the last phrase ought to have been in the next verse, but whatever. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There was no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was inside. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. And it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. One of the things I think that we find to be true is that extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary physical beauty can be a very dangerous gift. It soon became a real trial for Joseph. If a person has any wisdom, he or she would recognize that physical beauty is nothing to be proud about because we did not create it. It's a gift of God if we have it. 
And, and to take credit for the work of the Creator is to be a fool. Actually, the physical, physically beautiful must be very much on guard that his or her attitude and conduct of, of the attitude and conduct because otherwise we become, or they, people in that situation, uh, can be destroyed. And, and we can recount many examples of this, even in our own history in the 20th century. As we all realize, uh, in our society, all you have to do is turn the television on for a few minutes to recognize that youth and physical beauty are highly touted in our society as if nothing else really mattered. It doesn't matter as long as you're beautiful or young, everything else is irrelevant because life just kind of falls in your lap, you know, and you have the finest of cars and the finest of smokes and the finest of beers and the finest of friends and all this kind of stuff that seems to be thrown at us from every direction. But this is insane. I, as I was thinking about this, uh, Jim Elliott's little dictum came to my mind, so I, I wrote it in reverse, and I think this is kind of fitting here. He is a fool who strives after what he cannot keep and forsakes what he could not otherwise lose. Human physical beauty is fleeting and illusory. Well, the beauty of God, what the scripture calls the beauty of holiness, is eternal and it's real. As I thought of that, the example of the choosing of David uh, came to my mind from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story. I just have a couple of verses here that, that kind of illustrate, I think, this point. 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7. Samuel has gone to, to the house of Jesse because God had said to go there and anoint a king to replace Saul because Saul, the first king of Israel, has it turned out to be a man who was not after God's own heart. And so God was, wanted Samuel to anoint his successor. Then it came about in verse 6 when they entered and he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This, to me, is, is a truth that we need to keep in mind because it's so easy to fall into the trap that's all around us, to exalt the beautiful and to ignore the truly good and the righteous. Because so often, those two don't come together. Sometimes, but not very often. Now, in this, I'm not saying that Joseph was proud of his physical appearance. There is no evidence of that. There's no evidence that he was a vain person. It just simply makes the statement that he was handsome of form and face. And this reality impacted his life in a powerful way. It became a snare to him, not to, due to no fault of his own. You know, it doesn't say he stood in front of the mirror and primped and, and did all the things to make himself more handsome. I don't think he did anything of the sort. 
It could have resulted in his permanent downfall had he not been a man of God. If he wasn't a man who was wholeheartedly committed to his God and humble before him, this could have been his end. Remember Samson. Samson was a man who, whom God blessed with great strength. And Samson quickly illustrated that to him, his strength ought to get him whatever he wanted. And so, you know, whatever gal out there appealed to him, he thought he could just have her because he was the strongest man around. And, and we all know what happened to him. Yes, God glorified himself in the final destruction of 3,000 uh, of the Philistines, but it was to the death. Samson, Samson died a terrible death, being blinded and plowing around like an oxen. Well, not plowing, but crushing grain, uh, running a millstone, and, and then dying in the collapse of a, of, a, of a great pagan temple. Such a thing could have happened similarly to Joseph had he been trusting in his physical appearance rather than in his God. I think it's very important for us to recognize that as Joseph said here, there was no one more powerful in this house than I. And he was even implying to Potiphar's wife that she was not as powerful in the house of Potiphar even as Joseph was. So he was a powerful man in, in a powerful house. Remember, Potiphar was the head, the captain, the bodyguard of the Pharaoh, which meant he was probably one of Pharaoh's chief advisors. So he was a man of great power in the kingdom. So you had a large household and a large estate. And Joseph was in control of the whole thing. I mean, in our days, we'd probably say the guy was at least a multiple hundred millionaire, if not a billionaire, in relationship to, uh, to our society. And uh, with very few of them existing in that society as compared to ours. He was confident. He was competent. He was handsome. He was powerful. He was more than Potiphar's wife could take. And so she sought him. Now, it's very, very important for us, I believe, to understand that she was not an old bag. Pardon the expression. <laughs> but I have seen a film, a part of a film, in which, I mean, she was made to look like a witch, you know, like the Wicked Witch of the North or something. I don't think so. That wouldn't be a whole lot of a temptation here to uh, a man of uh, Joseph's stature. I think she was an extremely attractive person physically because Potiphar had the power and the wealth to be very picky. Probably was. I think Potiphar was a great deal older than his wife and therefore probably not as attractive to her, certainly not as Joseph. Now why in the world did she pursue Joseph? Here she was, the wife of a powerful noble. She had everything she could possibly want, it would seem. It's great estate, high standing in society, physical beauty for herself. So why in the world would she pursue Joseph? Well, I think that there are at least four reasons, and maybe all four apply here, why she may have Pursue, why she did pursue Joseph. First of all, I think it's implied here that she may have been starved for love and companionship. It could have been that there was a gulf between Potiphar and his wife. 
uh, that she was sort of like an ornament in his household rather than a companion, rather than a wife, rather than someone that could communicate and, and find companionship there. And everybody needs companionship. Everybody needs love. I, it doesn't matter how rich you are or how beautiful you are. You need that. And that's why so many of the rich and powerful in our society do so many stupid things from our point of view. It seems so stupid why they do this. You know, why do they go through marriage after marriage after marriage? And, and quite often there is no marriage. And, and it, they're looking for something which they're not finding because they're looking in the wrong place and because they don't even know how to find true love and true companionship. So it's very possible she wasn't receiving this from her husband and so she was looking for it somewhere else. Secondly, it could very well be that she wanted to prove to herself that she was still magnetic, attractive, that someone like, like Joseph would, would want her. Thirdly, it's very possible after watching this young man that she wanted to prove that he wasn't as virtuous as he appeared, that he wasn't this great tower of strength who could do you know, what he wanted or not, what he, you know, whatever he didn't want to do, that she could break through his defense and bring him down. Fourthly, it could be she was just a promiscuous person. I think all four are very possible here. All four may have played a role in this. I, I think we have to recognize, because all of us being human, that our thinking is often convoluted. And oftentimes there are many factors involved and it's, that's why psychology and psychiatry is such a difficult field <laughs> because human beings cannot just be clinically analyzed like, you know, here's the liver and the liver's almost always in the same place. I don't know if it's always in the same place, but more or less. <clears throat> but, but where people are in their mind, I mean, everybody's different. And so all of these factors could have played a role. But I think, importantly, behind the scene, the primary motivating factor is the Prince of Hell himself. And we need to see him here. We need to recognize, even though he's not named in these passages in Genesis, he is there. You know, we saw him in the Garden of Eden. And from there on, he was here, and he was at work. And I think in every one of these crises we read about in the book of Genesis, we have to realize that the Prince of Darkness is involved. And, and, and that his many minions are at work. And, and I think, as I've tried to emphasize before, possibly even in a greater way. Because in that day, there's just one Joseph. Well, at least as far as I know from Scripture. But today there are probably thousands, maybe even millions of Josephs around the world. Men and women who are committed to serve God and who need to be attacked. The whole world may have been resting in the hands of the evil one at this time with only Joseph and Jacob and his family as really righteous persons. I mean, we, that's an argument from <laughs> ignorance. We don't know uh, any different, but uh, I think that's a great possibility. And so we've got the concentration of the forces of hell here, as, as, as very few people today would, would know. Jesus later described the Pharisees in a way that I think is somewhat applicable here. In, uh, let me just turn to a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, verse 27. And Jesus is going through a whole series of woes here. 
He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, the factors are different, different here, of course. Jesus is talking about the religiosity of the Pharisees and their uh, companions. And here we're talking about Potiphar's wife, whose orientation is different. She's not concerned, at least at this point, with religiosity. But the principle applies the same. On the outward, she appeared, appeared beautiful and, and uh, doing what a wife of, of a captain of the bodyguard ought to do, but inwardly she was a sepulcher full of dead men's bones, and she wanted to kill Joseph in effect. That wasn't you know, in her thoughts, but that was the devil's purpose in using her to destroy Joseph and to take him down to Sheol, if you will. In Genesis 39 again, in the ninth verse, we read there that it's recorded that she looked with desire at Joseph. The literal Hebrew states that she had a, an eye of desire for Joseph, an eye of desire. Literally, the lust of the flesh here with this woman. And she made an overt attempt. I mean, she was not very subtle in her attempts to seduce Joseph. She used all of her feminine charm and all of her beauty to lure him into what would be for her adultery, what would be for him fornication. Either one, they're put side by side together in Scripture as evil in God's eyes. In studying this, the uh, seventh uh, proverb came to mind, and I thought it'd be appropriate at this point to look at that proverb because we live in a society today that really downplays this and, and uh, makes as if there, there is no such thing as, as uh, vileness in this area, that it's just a matter of taste and it's everybody's, you know, do what you like. And what's, what's really problematic about this is it has rubbed off on the church. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye, the very pupil, the very center of your vision. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your intimate friend that they may keep you from an adulteress and from the foreigner who flatters with their words. Now, you'll notice how this opens. The, the point that the proverbist, who we, we believe is Solomon here, is saying is that if you really want to avoid walking in the evil way, prepare your mind and your heart. You can't just say, well, I'm a Christian and I can walk around and and uh, do my own thing, and I'll be okay. No, we need to be prepared, even as Christians. For at the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. 
And I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For the man, meaning her husband, is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. With her many persuasions she entices him. With her flattering lips she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Those are strong words for a society that treats this so tritely today. That's no big deal, you know. It's a big deal. And of course, we have to recognize that we're talking about a bigger thing than just a professional prostitute here, here. We're talking about the whole concept involved here. Obviously, uh, Potiphar's wife was not a professional prostitute. This was not her occupation. But she was attempting to seduce Joseph. And, and that's exactly the portrait we get here in this seventh chapter of Proverbs. This woman is out to seduce. I mean, she's got a husband. She's got a home. He's got a bag of money. So what's the deal? Obviously, we're, we're talking about a situation in which uh, God is dealing with the whole concept of misplaced lust. <laughs> I mean, of the existence of lust uh, being directed into uh, wrong sexual use of our bodies. I think it's very possible when Solomon was inspired to write this proverb that he had Potiphar's wife even in his mind. <laughs> what better example do we have in the book of Genesis, at least, of this type of person than this woman. Because she plays so well the role of the adulteress here, doesn't she? She chases after him. She seduces him. Uh, she's got a husband. She's got a house. I mean, she's not doing this for a living. And Joseph plays well, not the role of the fool here, but the one who hears the truth, accepts the truth and follows the truth and turns away from the temptation and is not seduced by the temptress. I think this is something that needs to be heard loud and well inside the Church of America because we have it happening. 
we have it happening in so many different ways. And uh, God makes it clear that it's not acceptable. We cannot be strong Christians and, and live in this way, whether it be in, in the reality of what we do or in the mind even. You know, what do we entertain in our mind? And uh, it's thrown at us all the time from the world. You can't avoid it. Uh, we hear all the time today about, uh, you, you probably even experience it maybe in, in what happens to your children, but the women are so aggressive, the young girls are so aggressive, you know. Somebody was, who was it, was telling us that her son was called ten times in one night by the same girl. And he didn't want to talk to her. And uh, it just seems that we've got this kind of, a, of an image developing in our society in a much greater way than ever before. And try to say that doesn't have anything to do with uh, denying uh, the reading of scripture, you know, in school or a prayer or any of these other things, uh, that's pretty hard to do because our society historically has at least paid lip service towards God and thought of God as being someone we're all responsible to, whether in a personal relationship or not. But now God is just thrown out the window. I mean, what did this woman know about God? She didn't care at all about Joseph's God. And that's the way it is with so many today in our society. Joseph here comes through as living proof of the reality of a passage that we so often turn to or quote from in 1 Corinthians. And sometimes we quote from it in hitting somebody else over the head and then sometimes we wonder where is the strength for us. But he is a living, he is living proof that in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 to 13, that there's reality here. Now, these things happen to them as an example. I mean, why do we have this story? God could easily have written the book of Genesis without including this account. Years ago, we were attending another church down in the Bay Area. And it was a fairly large church. And... Uh, the pastor, uh, it was a visiting preacher, and he was preaching. I can't even remember what he was preaching on, but he was preaching on something like this. And there was somebody in the congregation who was obviously, how shall I say this kindly, but, but this woman was, was not with it. You know, she, she was um, emotionally, <laughs> severely emotionally disturbed. But he was preaching from a passage like this, and she kept saying, pornography, pornography. Finally, the usher had to escort her out, you know, but, you know, in, in a sense it is, but why is it here? You know, God's not a pornographer. But it tells us right here what it's for. These things happen to them as an example. They were written for our instruction. So we don't have to be idiots and go the same route and experience it all firsthand. We can learn to avoid the sins and the temptations and things which happened to others in the past by reading the scripture and learning from it. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. God does not lie. He says he has provided the way to escape. The problem is we get in, involved in a situation and we don't look for the way to escape. We, we haven't prepared ourselves to, to see the way to escape. I, I think it's very important we always recognize that when we sin, we sin because we choose to sin. It doesn't accidentally happen to us. It doesn't come upon us and force us to sin. We sin because that's our choice in the situation we choose to do what is wrong. Joseph chose not to. He refused her advances. He kept reminding her that Potiphar trusted him. Potiphar wanted him to wisely and carefully manage everything that Potiphar owned, and so that was Joseph's plan. Nothing in this household is beyond my power except you, because Joseph says, you're his wife. That apparently didn't mean much to her but it meant everything to Joseph. Joseph appealed to her to understand that he couldn't yield to her advances because to do so would, to would, would be to violate Potiphar's trust in him and beyond that, to violate the, the teachings and, and the faith he had in his God. Yahweh. Now, I think what's really, really significant here, what comes out of this is, how does Joseph know that this is wrong? I mean, he couldn't turn to 1 Corinthians or, or Jeremiah or anyplace else because there was no scripture to turn to. He didn't have one word of scripture in his hands to turn to and say, well, Lord, help me to find a passage here to deal with this problem. How did he know that adultery was sin? Remember, Moses won't even live for yet several hundred years, and he writes the first five books of Scripture. How does Joseph know this? Well, first of all, he knows, of course, what God has been teaching the patriarchs down through the centuries. He, he knew what was taught to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because he sat around the campfires and heard the words repeated over and over again. And he may not have been able to hear Abraham's words, uh, but he may have heard a few of Isaac's, and certainly Isaac's through Jacob. And so the, the truth was, was revealed to him, handed down from father to son, and certainly coupled with the fact that the Spirit of God was upon him. Even though we talk about the New Testament and the Holy Spirit coming in, in a new way at Pentecost, the Spirit of God was here in Joseph's day too, because we read back in the second uh, verse of the Bible that the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the earth. So the Holy Spirit was here. He may have been with Joseph in a little bit different way than he's with us, but he was there to guide Joseph, to strengthen Joseph, and to help Joseph. And so with the Spirit within and the knowledge that he had learned around the campfire, he knew what God expected here. And what is very interesting to note is even in the pagan societies of the world at that day, they did have marriage. 
And they did believe that, one, that the husband and the wife were supposed to be more or less faithful to each other. Now, you know, more or less. At least that was the way it was on the books. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, through the centuries from the Garden of Eden. And we have to believe that even though the Scripture did not exist, there was the passing down of oral tradition from generation to generation, even amongst the pagan peoples. Why is it that, uh, what was his name? Peter Stoner, I think one of those, uh, did, a, did a study and found that there were well over 300 societies from all around the world that all have the same flood account. Now, how in the world do they all get the same flood account? I mean, we're talking about societies that had this account before missionaries ever came. Because it's a recounting of an event that really happened. And, and they all have these traditions. You, know, you can imagine that uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth told their sons and daughters, and they told their sons and daughters, and they told their sons and daughters. And of course, after a few generations, the story probably got a little distorted. And that's why we have the uh, Babylonian myth, that is the Sumerian Gilgamesh epic, and, and the story there is, is a little bit distorted. And we have a Chinese epic that's very, very ancient too, that's almost more accurate than the Babylonian epic, uh, because it really happened. And so this whole idea of, of marriage, without scripture to, to enforce it, was, was known even in pagan societies because of carry, being carried down from father to son and mother to daughter through the centuries to the day in which we're talking about, or about which we're talking at this time. Joseph knew that although Potiphar might not find out, God knew. In Proverbs, we also read, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. He also understood the truth that David would, rather, would later write, that when we sin, we sin against God. Now, it may be we also sin against a person, which would be true in this case, but we also are sinning against God. God sees it. God knows it. It's against him. And therefore, Joseph would not do it. But Potiphar's wife didn't give a rip. She didn't care about Yahweh. Egypt was full of gods. A lot of the gods were very promiscuous and goddesses. I mean, you read the mythology of ancient Egypt. You, know, you read about Horus, and you read about Isis, and, and, and you read about Seth, and, these, and, and it's pretty gross, really. It, a lot of it's literally pornographic, of the things which happen. And with that on your mind, it's what you fill your mind with, right? And her mind is filled with all this kind of stuff. It's no problem for her, but Joseph had a different mind. And with that mindset, this did not fit. But she kept after him day after day after day. You know, we read in the scripture, it says, if you resist the devil, he will flee. You say, well, what happened to Joseph here? Well, the scripture doesn't say if you resist the devil, he will flee and stay fled. He comes back. He comes back. He says, well, I got beat off this time, but I'm going to come back from a different angle. I'll try a different tact. I'll toss a fiery dart from a different direction. I'll catch him at a different time. Maybe when he's tired. Maybe when he's distracted. Maybe when he's got a bad thought in his mind. 
I'll come at him again. And that's why Paul gives us the passage that we have so often read, maybe so often that we, we almost trivialize it. That you can't just put on the armor of God once, but the passage says, put on the armor, put on the armor, put on the armor, put on the armor, put on the armor. It's a continuous process. I'd like to go back to that passage for a moment. Even though we probably almost all could quote it by heart, sometimes I think we miss some of the powerful statements that are in here. And miss them as far as application is concerned. Ephesians 6.10. Notice how it starts. It says, finally. In the last analysis, when you come down to bedrock, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Joseph was not strong in his own strength. He was strong in the might of the Lord. Put on the full armor of God before that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. See, that's getting behind Potiphar's wife. It wasn't just the scheme of a woman. It was the scheme of the devil. She was simply his tool. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. She may have thought it was all her idea, and it was all her thing, and she was going to get him, but something was far more powerful at work here. Verse 13, Therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And now notice in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray when you feel like it. Pray once a day. Pray a five-minute prayer. It says pray at all times. That means that should be our response in every situation is, oh, God, <laughs> doesn't have to be long. You know, remember Peter, one long, help, Lord. Uh, that's sometimes the only prayer we need to pray. He knows the rest. You don't have to have a long explanation to God, you know, with lots of commas and colon and semicolons and everything else because God knows it all. Pray at all times in the Spirit with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We must pray and we must pray for each other. When? At all times. It says... Be on the alert. See, that's where so many of us get tripped up. We are not alert. And that's why the scripture is here. It's given for our instruction so we might be alert. We need, you know, if, if we're not aware of the wiles of the evil one, we get caught. Now, the bird, if it knows the net's there, won't fly into it. But if we're not alert, 
How do we get alert? <laughs> I know, the world needs more alerts, right? <laughs> uh, how do we, how are we to be alert? Well, the only way we're going to get that way is by intensely studying this book and, as Paul says here, praying. If we neglect those two things, we're not going to be aware of what's going on and we're going to get into the trap. I, I'm reading a book right now in which one of the chapters deals with the mind uh, of, you know, our minds. It's specifically dealing with men and talking about the minds of men. And uh, he makes the, the comment in there that probably the church has never been as weak in America as it is today because the minds of men are not on Christ, even in the church. He says that you cannot sit in front of the boob tube hours a day and have the mind of Christ. It simply is impossible because the world is throwing everything and anything it can at you, and if your mind is being washed with all of this all the time, you cannot, it's impossible, to have the mind of Christ. The only way to have the mind of Christ is to be in the Word of God, not with just the little daily bread in the morning and little teeny verse and somebody's comments about it. That's fine for a moment, but there's got to be this continual washing because the scripture says it is the word of God which washes us clean and washes our minds. It's got to be there. And we've got to be people of prayer. If we don't pray, then we're not helping one another and we're not helping ourselves. I mean, it doesn't come out in so many words and say Joseph fell on his knees and beseeched, oh God, that this would go away, you know. She'd go away. But you can imagine what was going through his heart. Oh Lord, I'm in a mess here. Get me out of the tentacles of the evil one. Peter also spoke to the issue in a passage that we have read several times before, and we'll, uh, we'll have to end with this. 1 Peter 5. The key, one of the keys is given to us in the very first word of this passage. It says, humble, humble yourselves. You cannot stand in pride before God and expect Him to do anything. If I regard iniquity in my heart, thou wilt not hear me. And we keep iniquity there because we are unwilling to humble ourselves before God. We must first of all humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in the proper time, casting your anxiety on Him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, I don't know if we always get the real power of this here. I don't know if you ever watched a lion eating. But if you can imagine yourself, I mean, what was this? It was just a few weeks ago, right? Somewhere down in, in the hills of the Sierras, a, a woman was killed by just an 80-pound cougar. Now you go to Africa and you run into some of those lions and they're not 80-pound cougars. You know, they're 500-pound beasts. And, and you know, if, if that little, tiny, seemingly small cat could, could kill a person, we have to kind of get this picture here. I mean, the devil, 
Uh, some people like to say, oh, well, you know, devil's teeth are all pulled. He just gums you to death. <laughs> you know, that's trivializing something here. I mean, he is able to destroy, and we need to remember that. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what he's trying to do all the time. He's at work in us to do those things. And I think it's important for us today to commit ourselves to running contrary to the flow of the church in America today. And that is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And to be perfected, confirmed, strengthened, and established. And, and to make it so that as far as we are concerned, the devil does have his teeth extracted because he's not able to tear us down. All Joseph would have to have done was to step back for a minute and, and look at this woman and decide, well, you know, it might not be so bad after all. She really wants it, you know. Why should I deny it? And the guy would have been torn to pieces spiritually. And God would never have been able to use him for the great purposes that he had. And there are Christians that that's happened to. And they have been torn apart and unable to serve God anymore. They've been in places of leadership because they have so yielded. And it may not just be in this area. It could be in any area where the enemy is after them. God allows it to happen, but it's not because he doesn't try to help us and doesn't give us the support we need. He's there. We need to be alert in the word and in prayer for each other. Well, we'll continue on next week with... What happens? Poor Joseph does the right things and gets whacked anyway. Do you ever feel that way? I did the right thing. Where were you, God? I think Joseph could have very well said, Hey, God, did you notice? <laughs> I didn't do it. Why am I in this prison? <laughs>